Well, this is Michael Easley in Context, and it's a delight to have you join us on the broadcast, and it's a privilege to have Dr. Stephen Baskerville on the podcast today. Dr. Baskerville is a professor of state studies at the Collegium Intermarium in Warsaw, Poland. He is the author of several books on sexual politics, most recently, The Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World, How to Survive as a Man in an Age of Misandry, and Do So with Grace by Sophia Institute Press, published in 21. I'm not going to read Dr. Baskerville's bio. We'll have all the information about him in the show notes, as always, because I want to spend time with our guest. I want to open with Genesis chapter 1. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. And then in verse 26 of chapter 1, then God said, let us make man, Adam, in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over, notice it goes plural, them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, etc. Verse 27, then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Stephen, you have not only a scholarly aspect to this, but this more recent book, is it fair to say, is a popular address to the topic of gender and maleness and all the stuff we're dealing with in our cultures? Yes, very much so. I had written a couple of books on sexual politics. They're quite heavy. I like to think they're thorough and readable, but many people find them emotionally difficult because of the, you know, draining because of the subject matter. So I decided it was time to write a a popular book, a more popular book, a little lighter, hopefully entertaining, and something that comes at it from a more subjective viewpoint. In other words, my previous books were kind of semi-scholarly and tried to tell people about the situation with the family and sexuality in our society. This is more addressed to the, the second person, you. What can you do about this in your own personal life and in, you know, as part of the larger society? Let me begin with kind of a series of, let's set a groundwork just some questions you can be as brief or more on the brief side on these. Give me a basic definition of a gentleman. That's a good question. I don't really define one in 25 words or less in the book. It's a, it's a term. <laughs> that's that why I'm been, asking. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's a term that's been subject to a lot of definition and evolution over the centuries. The main tension in the definition of a gentleman is on the one hand, there's the, you know, the class identification, the member of the gentry, the man with an estate, a property of responsibility in society, of status. And then there's the other side, there's the ethical side. And much of the definition over the centuries in books and literature and plays, poems, books like the one I wrote, has been people telling gentlemen, you're not behaving ethically the way your status indicates you should. In other words, you have all the accoutrements of a gentleman, you're wealthy, you're responsible, you have high status, you dress well, you're polite, but you're not obeying God, or you're not obeying the ethical principles that it should be. And, and this has been the, you know, the theme of 19th century novels, it was the theme of Renaissance preaching and Reformation preaching. So it's something over the centuries, it's been a matter of aligning those, you know, those accoutrements, those pretty aspects of it, dressing well and you know, dancing a quadrille and pouring a martini, aligning those together with the ethical side of it and, you know, being a a responsible citizen. And there's always been a religious element to it as well, a Christian element. 
We're calling this series Biblical Manhood in a Man-Hating Culture, and that's a little bit of a clickbait title, but it's so difficult. And one of the reasons I want to get some of your, you know, kind of baselines here, gentlemen, how do you define chauvinism? I'm not sure I ever used that word in the book. I'm not saying you have. I'm saying how would Stephen define the word chauvinism and chauvinistic? Well, chauvinism usually is taken to mean, uh, I mean, it's been a word taken over by the feminists, of course, to refer to a male chauvinist. Uh, Originally, the word, I believe, had a connotation of a more of a patriotic or nationalistic chauvinism, a sense of superiority because of one's nation or, you know, background or, uh, I suppose, in this case, sexuality or sex, I suppose, a sense of superiority or smugness. It's not a subject I really talk about. I hope it's something I'm not guilty of. What about feminism? Well, that's a difficult one. That is a term that I use. In virtually all of my books, I talk about feminism, including this one. In all cases, I discuss it as a political ideology. In this book, I say is basically all political ideologies are poisonous for everyone, but especially for men. I believe a man should be a leader, a member of the civic culture, and that's part of what, you know the subtitle of ruling the world, is that I think a man should be engaged with his society and a leader in it. It does not follow that he should join political causes and attempt to um, be the boss or attempt to impose his own ideas on other people, his own, his own fleeting opinions on other people. What about, and this gets into a lot of subsets, but gender is actually a newer topic in literature and the way it's been used, even down to gender neutral. And then we get into fluidity. And then, of course, the LGBTQA underline plus whatever's coming down next. So give us your sort of overview on how you address the topic of gender. Well, again, I don't know that I ever use that term, except ironically, perhaps. I don't believe in the term comes from grammar. I prefer to use the term uh, refer to biological sex when I'm talking about men and women. I do warn men against using feminist jargon, because I do find that among men, especially some men's rights groups. I warn them against being the mirror image of the feminists and importing feminist jargon, like terms like gender equality, which is some men you know, who claim discrimination, for example, in the family courts, uh, quite justly, quite rightly claim this. Nevertheless, I warn them against using terms like discrimination and terms like gender equality, because I think this is political jargon, and I don't think it's helpful in the least. I've uh, had conversations with publishers and friends of mine who've been on translation committees to say, why did we have to start using gender as a way of thinking about grammar in the Bible? And I've got a bunch of pet peeves, one of them being the loss of the divine pronoun. It's sort of this cascade of events that were so overly cautious not to offend. Mm -hmm. These words become an economy. They're a nomenclature that you don't talk about these words, especially if you're a man, even more so if you're a white man. Well, very much so. But I do talk about them to some extent. One of the definitions of a gentleman I speak about in the book is that you're going to offend people. And you have to accept that. You should not go out of your way to offend people. You should not try to offend people. And you shouldn't offend people ever for light or frivolous or purely personal reasons. You should save it for the most important items. But it's going to happen. And a man has to deal with that and defend himself. I quote Oscar Wilde, that a gentleman never offends unintentionally. 
Yeah, I saw that earlier in your materials. I love it. These are broad topics, but I'm just trying to get a foundation for folks that aren't familiar with your writing and hopefully it incentivizes them to read your materials. But what are some of the origins of the vitriol toward men in general as you look at it? Well, there certainly is that, and I talk about that quite a lot. I try not to dwell on grievances and dwell on complaints because this is something that has to be avoided. But I do point out that the book that I wrote is part of an old genre, and men have been writing books like this about manhood and about gentlemanliness for centuries. But in the past, what's different today is that in the past, these books are generally the threat to a man's manhood comes from other men, you know, the bully on the block or the rival in love. But today, the threat comes from this cultural and ideological disapproval not of individual men, but of manhood itself, masculinity itself. So it makes men afraid to be masculine, or it makes them afraid to want to be or to try to become more masculine. So what is the origin of it? I think a lot of it is ideological. Some of it is impersonal. Some of it is, you know, changes in our economics. Men are less involved in manual labor, physical labor. They're less involved in military, and the requirements of brute strength and courage are not necessarily parts of everyday life. But there are requirements that we men show moral courage if they don't have to show physical courage. I argue that even though our society has changed, more men work in offices. There are more jobs nowadays that women can do just as well as men can do. And so therefore, we've created this illusion that emasculinity is no longer needed. And on top of those kind of changes in the economy and society, you do have this temptation toward ideology, which you know dwells on this change and makes men feel inferior for being men. So I think it's a combination of those things. You mentioned in one of your pullouts, the more educated a man is, the more aware he is of his own ignorance. Further, an educated man knows at least one world language in addition to his own, which I work at several of those, but I don't know them, Stephen. <laughs> I'm curious, though, we've become reductionistic with social media the education, at least in the West, has become, my viewpoint, I can be wrong, it's much more diminished, less demanding, lower the bar, academic rigor is sort of a relic for scholars and has-beens. And so we have this perfect storm of, you know, you mentioned ideology, we're not educating, we're getting information from an Instagram post, a tweet, Facebook, which is a terrible way to get educated in any form. And yet we're fighting this culture. So with that preamble, when you think of the rhetoric of these things, you've mentioned ideology several times now, cultural, political, and then, of course, I want to get to the church in a moment, but I'm not being real clear here. But when I look at this amalgamation of things we're up against, if we talk about biblical manhood and being a strong, kind, good, godly man, it's an uphill battle all the way. Yes, it is. But it's never been easy. To be a man. It's always something that has to be proven. It's got something that's had to be achieved. That's always been part of it. It's just today that the achievements are different. Again, most of us don't have to risk our life in foreign wars or uh, you know, in law enforcement or protecting our homes on a daily basis. But we have to show courage in other ways and manhood in other ways. I actually don't see a deficiency in men today when it comes to things like physical courage. I see a deficiency when it comes to, to moral courage. And I see sometimes very manly men, men who I admire for their manliness, again, in a physical sense mostly, are sometimes, I think, confused how to deal with things like a culture that is hostile to masculinity itself. 
where they're taught to be ashamed of how they interact with women. The book was partly written to help men in that situation, men that have part of their masculinity is quite intact and quite healthy, but there's another side that's very confused and disoriented because of the changes in our culture. And for example, you mentioned education. I think uh, that's one thing where many men, uh, you know, at one time when I was young, we could assume we would go to school and then to a university and we'd get a good education. Well, that's no longer, even if you do go to a good school and to a snooty university, you don't necessarily have a good education coming out of it. I deal with, um, you may have heard of Will Noland, who was just recently sacked from Eton, one of the most prestigious schools in the world, because he was politically incorrect in some of the things he said. You know, if this happens at Eton, and it's much more advanced in places like Oxford, Cambridge, the Ivy League, and so forth, then men have to fall back in, in their own devices. They can't assume. They have to get their own education. And that's maybe not such a bad thing. And I try to show them how to do that in the book. One more kind of larger comment, and then we'll go to the book in particular. I'm interested in your thoughts on culture, culture war, this wokeness thing that we're seeing now, certainly in ideology. And even if a man is fairly confident in who he is, it's almost like we're in this cultural tripwire minefield that no matter what we do or how we do, it can trigger you know, a lot of pushback, especially from people that I don't want to be categoric, but the feminist in particular can be extremely hard on a guy and reduce him. I mean, they can ghost him. Well, very true. You know, self-reliance and, you know, being able to stand up to that kind of thing has always been part of manhood. Now, generally, there are many men, again, who are perfectly able to stand up to another man, to his physical strength or to his aggression or to his insults, but they don't know how to stand up to a woman exhibiting the same threats. You're right, but it's part of it, and it always has been a part of it. I mean, we admire John Wayne, and we admire, but we also admire Humphrey Bogart. He never hesitated to, to stand up to the women as well as to the men. That's a part of it. It's always been part of it. We shouldn't allow ourselves to lose it. In your book, A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World, your organization obviously tells a lot about where you're going. Obviously, you talk about what a gentleman is. You jump right into leadership then. Why? Well, because that's part of it. That's a big part of it, of course, as many people have said. And I felt like there's a lot of nonsense written about leadership. You know, it's not, of course, just a matter of grabbing the microphone or being the first to start ordering other people about. The message I wanted to get across is that for a man, leadership really begins with yourself. You have no choice. You have to be self-reliant. There's no welfare agencies to take care of men. You have to fall back on your own devices and you have to be willing to take care of yourself. And from there, it works out, you know, in concentric circles. You look out for the people that you love, the people that are close to you, your family, your immediate family, your extended family, your neighbors, friends, your co-workers, your parishioners. But you don't necessarily take on abstract ideologies and try to save all of humanity at once. If God calls you to that, that will happen. But it doesn't usually start that way. It usually starts with your immediate circle. You know, men feel um, helpless. They feel impotent in a large sense. I wanted them to realize that there's no need to be, because just to be a man, you have to be a leader. I have told the story many times. My wife and I had used to teach marriage and parenting conferences for many years, and I would tell a rather elongated story about my wife and my son going head to head on something, and she's the maternal, compassionate, nurturing, caring, far more comforting, forgiving person. And when I heard him fighting with her, just my voice, not raised, not in anger, not in any type of you know unkindness, but to say, uh, how are you addressing 
your mother, my wife. And it was immediately you'd watch the volume go down because he knew to deal with me was going to be a very different proposition than to continue arguing with her mother. And I use that illustratively just to say there's a place to be kind, gentle, and firm as a man. And it's one thing in the home, but in the work world, in the military, I have physician, medical personnel friends who between the feminist and the LGBTQA, they're walking on eggshells all day long with how they look at a person, how they talk to a person. God forbid you brush up against a woman or say you look nice today. It's a very different context, Stephen, than it was for you or me, say, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Yes, absolutely. It certainly is. Well, I don't advise men to do things that are um, necessarily foolish, but I do think that we do have to show the courage. And I think the home is the place we learn that. The home is where we learn to rebel constructively. And our fathers are the ones that, you know, help us to get our rebellion under control. Because, of course, as your son showed, you know, youth is, is naturally rebellious, discontented, ready to lash out, ready to express grievances with the whole world. It's your, in the family context, especially with your father, that you learn to, uh, to get that under control, to channel it into activities and habits that are constructive rather than destructive. I think your story kind of illustrates that. You spend in your book some interesting time talking about the appearance, and I've heard you on podcasts talk about this as well. When I was in grad school, we had to wear a coat and tie. You know, I, I didn't mind. I thought it comical the way that could be defined by different men's students in particular. But one of the subsequent presidents changed the dress code to <laughs> casual clothes, and boy, did the alum come out and speak <laughs> – <laughs> with opinions about it. But there is a sense, tell me where I'm wrong. I know, I know you agree with this, but where are we wrong in thinking? We don't want to be pretentious in the way we dress and somehow better, but it does communicate. I mean, even this morning when I said, okay, Stephen and I are going to be on audio, but I'm going to see him. Should I put a start shirt and a tie on? <laughs> because you talk at length about you know, dress is important and looking the part, you might, that's probably not a fair way to say it, but being respectable. Yeah, I do. And I, I hope I transcend some of the platitudes about that because it is important. I think it's not, people often say that it's a matter of showing respect. And that's true, of course. I think it's more a matter of, you know, the default position is to please other people. You're showing people that you you want to please them. Well, until they do something to, to make you change your mind about that. But at least that's the starting point is you want to please people. I think it's important even in your daily life. I think, you know, a lot of men will wear a coat and tie to their office, but not in their home life or their private life. And I think in some ways that is wrong. And I think, it, you know, you're showing not respect so much to the workplace. You're showing if you just do it for the people that you fear, then really what you're doing is showing civility rather than respect. In other words, uh, you know, if you don't show the same respect to the people in your personal life, your family, your friends, people at church and so forth, that you show to your employer who has control over your livelihood, it's not so much respect, it's possibly, you know, being a lot of obsequiousness. I think you have to do that. The other thing, the point I make, which I, I hope will get some attention, is that the more formally we dress, the more sex-specific it is. In other words, when you dress like a, in very informal ways, it blurs the distinction between an adult and a child. Informality is adolescent. You know, a boy can dress the same way as a man. Also, it blurs the distinction between the sexes, between men and women. A t-shirt and a pair of blue jeans can be worn by either one. 
whereas the coat and a tie is specific to men. So I think it's never in a man's interest to adopt this almost obligatory informality. It's in a man's interest to project the image that he is a man, that he accepts the responsibilities of manhood. And a man's dress is, uh, as you indicate, a kind of a uniform. It's not a matter of being superior. It's a matter of fitting into a, a uniform status, which is an acceptance of responsibility. So, you know, men's dress, unlike women's, tends to be fairly standard and fairly um, uniform. I uh, often comment to my guys I hopefully am discipling and encouraging. I said, you know, guys, I get up every day, I shower, I shave, I put on a clean shirt. I do like starch shirts. I grew up in the parochial school system, so we had to wear starch khakis and starch shirts, and that was sort of the uniform. But even if my wife doesn't comment on it, Stephen, it's important to me that I I do this because I love my wife and I don't want her to look at me like I'm half unmade bed, unshaven. I didn't care. And to me, it communicates, I love you. And it's important that when you look at your husband, you say, hey, he took care of himself a little bit. Is that wrong? Oh, no, absolutely. That's very right. I mean, uh, I think it's always the case that, you know, the woman, is when a couple is out in public together, the woman is, you know, the picture and the man is the frame. But still, the frame has to be presentable as well. And I think I see this a lot. I first noticed this in Eastern Europe in the 90s. But I see it today in the Western world of, you know, an elegantly dressed woman on the street with a man who looks like he's a superannuated farmhand. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that shows a loss of self-respect. I think it's very wrong. I mean, men are not taught these things. And, you know, if they're not taught, the default position becomes to dress informally. And I think you have to, you know, bite the bullet, take the initiative and, uh, you know, go into a shop and learn how to buy a, uh, it doesn't take much to buy a, a jacket, a pressed shirt and a tie. And um, once you start, you know, it becomes, uh, it becomes easier. Owen Strachan or Strachan, I probably mispronounced his name. Someone forwarded this to me the other day. He had a post on Twitter and he says, men, cut the man bun, lop it off. Time to look like a man. No one wants to say this is an androgynous age, but in the obedience to God, do it. <laughs> and I, I agree with him, but I thought, well, the tone could have been a little different. But <laughs> I'm not I don't sure see you man wearing a man bun. bun. Is, but, um, oh, anyway. really? Oh, goodness, Stephen. Sorry. So this when guys grow long hair and they put a little, you uh, know, they wrap their thing yeah. up top and they, you know, and they knit. Yeah. So it's sort right. of the it's the next generation of hipster, perhaps. My right. executive right. producer is probably going to give me a pretty look. Age, at a certain age, I, I agree. I, I talk about <laughs> tattoos and backward baseball caps, and, and maybe in the next edition I'll have man bones as well. Um, because, yeah, at a certain age it becomes unseemly and an embarrassment to the people you're with. You know, we're in Nashville in the middle of Tennessee, and, of course, the art culture here, I often comment when we lived in Washington, D.C., you did not wear a sport coat and slacks. You wore a suit. And times I was either in, you know, Capitol Hill or the Pentagon, it was probably better that you had lace shoes, even if they were dress shoes, you know, there was just a protocol. When we moved to middle Tennessee, Stephen, you know, the right jeans and the right shirt that cost about the same amount of money were culturally important. If I wore the business suit and the power suit I wore in DC and Northern Virginia, it would have not worked Unless, you know, I was downtown Nashville as a lawyer or something. So there's some cultural awareness there. And I'm asking for help because I still feel comfortable in a start shirt, but I'm a minority where I live. Well, I think you should assert yourself. I, yes, I agree. I mean, the, the, traditional <laughs> rule, the traditional rule is that, you, you know, you dress to fit in with the company because 
both overdressing and underdressing can be taken as an insult by your yes. your, your company. Um, but I think if I were erring, I would err on the side of overdressing a little bit because I think we have to recover some of these standards. And if some people take it a little amiss, feel a little bit, you know, ashamed as a result, well, if it's gentle, I think there's no harm in that. Be that as it may. You go on to talk about a lot of topics that I find interesting. You didn't mention shoe shining, although I haven't read your whole book. My dad made us shine our shoes every Saturday night on the kitchen table. But anyway, you talk about vulgarity, about public speaking, about going out, about meals, about vices. So how did you come up with these topics, Stephen? They just kind of occurred to me. I didn't plan to do a lot of them. I started with the parts that I thought were obvious and I needed addressing. And then the more I thought about it, the others just kind of kept popping up and I had to say something about them. And at first I felt, gee, I don't really know anything about gambling. I don't do it. You know, I guess it's a bad thing. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought there are some interesting things about about it and why it's bad and perhaps in some cases why it might be good. I did some research and I found that, you know, it builds camaraderie. It encourages risk taking. Obviously, it can destroy your life and it can do a lot of harm. But it was quite an education for me to write the book. Of course, I discovered a lot of the attributes of a gentleman that I don't have. So it was, it was, it was uh, I guess, elevating for me as well, I hope. Well, obviously, you think a beard is distinguished. <laughs> uh, I, I, had, I, didn't, I didn't even uh, think of addressing that in the book. Yeah, I, this, this dates from I'm a just, canoe. From I'm a canoe just pulling your chain, 20s. Doc. Yeah. Just pulling your chain. Okay, let's talk about, again, civic life. And you have chapters on music, dancing, sports, firearms, military service, church, philanthropy. Give us a thumbnail of some of the things you're addressing. Well, yeah, there again, each one of those, there's a lot of platitudes about them, uh, which I, I don't want to, I didn't want to, uh, you know, just repeat the things that other people, uh, and there are books that might cover some of those topics more thoroughly than I do. But I tried to look at them from an angle that maybe other people hadn't seen before. For example, philanthropy. I mean, the old idea that a gentleman should be gracious to the poor and to the arts and to you know, the community should be generous, assuming he has the means to pay for things in the community and especially to give to the poor. Well, the more I thought about it, though, I realized that a lot of the problems today are the fact that not only the gentlemen don't do this, but the welfare state does it instead. And then I began to realize that actually I've already written quite a lot about how horrible the welfare state is and all the things that it does and the way it erodes manhood and the way it undermines child rearing and prevents children from having fathers. And so the more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, I do know something about philanthropy and why it's important, because if we don't give to the poor out of Christian charity, who's going to give to the poor? Well, the bureaucrats are going to do it. The functionaries are going to move in. The social professional social workers, and they're going to create more poor to make sure they're dependent on them, and, and the problem is going to be worse. So the more I thought about these topics, I realized almost every topic I deal with has some special implications for you know, the status of men and their relationships with women, larger things which are in the self-interest, if you like, of individual men and of our society. Leon Podol's perhaps wrote one of the more groundbreaking texts on the feminization of the church. And then we had many contributors, Gordon Dalby and others. I go back to Robert Bly as sort of a historical trajectory of where manhood, he had a lot of things right, but he had a lot of things wrong as well. Iron John, Smoke on the Mountain. I'm sure you're familiar with some of these writings. 
Dalby tried to Christianize some of that thinking with the four archetypes. So we have these kind of pictures of manhood, even storyboards. If you wanted to watch a movie, a Western, there's a storyboard about the would-be hero, the conflict, he runs away, he has to come back and face his past. These stories are pretty timeless, even in Scripture. Where did we get off? And rather than just you know summarily saying evil, where did we get off track where manhood became vilified, we started curtsying to feminism, and uh, we started losing courage? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, many people trace it far back. I mean, some people uh, trace it back to the, the ideal of courtly love, for example, back in the, you know, in the Middle Ages. I should say the debasement of the concept of chivalry and courtly love, the over-sentimentalization of, of women, sometimes the infantilization of women has played a role in that. Many people have, tra- and specifically you alluded to the, you know, how this has happened in the church and Leon Pottles and others who have pointed out the, you know, the, the flight of men from the church, the feminization of the churches. That's a very good question because it, it clearly has happened there. Aaron Wren just wrote a piece about that on his Christian website, The Masculinist, about the way we've kind of infantilized women. And some feminists have objected to that as well, almost to the point of, you know, that women are not sinners and only men are sinners, which, of course, is a profoundly unchristian theology. Where did this happen? I'm not sure exactly, because I think, you know, if you go back a few centuries, it probably wasn't. People had a fairly realistic attitude toward, you know, the sinful nature of, of both men and women which, of course, is much sounder Christian theology. Some people argue it came in the 19th century with the separation of men from the household, uh, the decline of the household economy, the, the feminization of the home where men went off to offices or to external jobs and left the home as the kind of um, you know, domain of women. Some people hope to recapture a, a, you know, a more healthy family life. With the, Some people argue that you know, the, the family today could become, we could recapture the household economy with things like computers and, you know, working at home and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not quite sure. Again, economic changes, which have, you know, taken men out of the home and put them in offices, the service economy, as opposed to the, you know, the manual labor, have all, I think, contributed to the, you know, the decline of masculinity as an ideal. I've heard blame placed on the Catholic Church for their idealization of Mary, the mother of God, and I've heard blame placed on the Protestant churches and the Reformation for a sentimentalized view of the family and women. I'm not sure I would put a huge amount of stock in those, but it's something to think about. In a very recent article you published called Real Men Missing, you conclude with some interesting things, and this is more germane perhaps to policy and politics, but you have three points at the end of your article, or two, excuse me, domestic policy and defense policy, which I think is helpful to differentiate Let me read what you have written. Under domestic policy, marriage must be an enforceable legal contract conferring parental rights and authority. The devious oxymoron of no-fault divorce forever expunges from law. I remember reading your article years ago when no-fault divorce was really getting traction. Was it 1972 that became legalized in the States? Memory fails Uh, me. The first law was 69 in California. but California. And then by 72, it... It pretty well swept the country. You go on to say men must know that if they marry and keep their vows within specified terms, they have reasonable rights and authority over their children, which the state must enforce. Yikes. Secondly, defense policy, reinstate compulsory military service for all men of a determined age. I could not have shouted higher on this one. 
I spend a bit of time in Israel, and of course, you know, well know it's compulsory for men and women. They have a three-year high school, and then they have men have three years in the military, women have two. Everybody goes into the military because they have you know enemies on three sides and the ocean on the fourth, so they have to take care of themselves. But you continue, basic Republican principles inspired the American Revolution, extolled manliness and denounced the effeminacy and foppery of the associated with European royal courts. The cornerstone principle was citizens in arms, bearing arms in defense of home and country confers citizenship rights. A citizen army also has no bureaucratic incentive to create wars. That's a point I hadn't thought about. Military discipline would help nip adolescent rebelliousness, and it would defeminize the military. Boy, you're swimming upstream, brother. <laughs> the military yeah. today has to embrace. It's not don't ask, don't tell under Clinton anymore. It's uh, we'll pay for your reassignment surgery. Yes, that last little phrase may be wishful thinking. I realize a, a number of people criticize me. <laughs> uh, sympathetic people criticize me for the you know the, the feminization. You're right. The, the military is horribly feminized today. It's this striking, shocking irony. I mean, the ideal behind that, as I tried to convey as succinctly as I could, was, of course, the citizen army, the militia, and not the bureaucratic army. But, you know, recovering that kind of ideal, of course, you're right, is an uphill battle. And I didn't mean to endorse the idea that men should be, you know, drafted into a, an institution that's going to feminize them further, but hopefully help to have a creative role in reforming the military itself in a more masculine direction. When you step back on this, and I'm a churchman at this chapter most of my life and been involved in local churches, how do you help? And I'm loathe to burden the church with, the church needs to fill in the blank. I've heard this for 40 years, Stephen. You know, the church would do this and do that. And granted, there's some merit in churches that haven't been involved. At the same time, making disciples of all ethnos and sharing the gospel and shepherding a flock are quite different than political action. So there's a guy in the pew, there's a 20-something young man, maybe in his 30s, he's married, he's sorting this out, he lives in a feminized culture, works for a corporate context that's very tricky, very dicey, not only the feminist issue, but the LGBTQ issue. He feels handicapped, he's afraid for his job. What are some things you would tell that young man coming into being a follower of Christ and how do I step up without, you know, causing a complete commotion, but to be a man that God has designed me to be. Right. I think he might have to cause a commotion. I mean, I would like to see a little more leadership among the clergy on some of these issues. I think there are, I'm not advocating, uh, I don't advocate, you know, creating a theocracy, but I do think there are many instances, especially today, where the churches need to step up to the plate and um, assume civic and, and even political responsibilities. And I think especially the areas of sexual morality. It's the church's turf. It's their turf, and they need to recapture it. And when it comes, when it requires a confrontation with the state, they need to not flinch. Because well, think about it, over the centuries, how many of the great defining moments in Christian history have been when churchmen, brave churchmen, stand up to the civil authorities and say, you are encroaching on God's turf. You are overstepping your bounds. You are abusing your authority. You know, Ambrose of Milan, you know, uh, the Polish bishop uh, in Krakow, uh, whose name I can't pronounce, Cardinal John Fisher, perhaps, Richard Wurmbrandt in Romania, Martin Luther King. I mean, all of these, Catholic and Protestant, were churchmen who stood up 
and they didn't hesitate to tell the civil state and its officials when they were overstepping their bounds and encroaching on God's territory. And I think we need sexual morality is the area where we need in the churches we need to do that. We need to grasp the, the nettle and um, say you know marriage, marriage especially. You know, if I consecrate a marriage or, or I get married, or if I'm a clergy who consecrates a marriage, and the civil authorities tear up that contract, that covenant. I think I've got standing to walk in the courtroom and say, you have no right to do this. You have no right to inflict this injustice, to tear up my sacrament or my ordinance and to uh, to inflict injustice on the spouses and the children of this marriage. I think we have no choice about this. And I think parishioners should, be, should do this as well, as well as the clergy. Dr. Stephen Baskerville, thanks for being on the broadcast. You can find out more about him in our show notes, or you can go to stephenbaskerville.com and find all this information and more. You need to read some of his stuff, his articles, and if you have the time, jump into his more academic books. Uh, God bless you, sir. Thanks for your time, and uh, stay warm. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. God bless you as well. Thank you, sir, and you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.